Master Tavern Keepers, History of the Old World. That took a lot more effort than I thought. For younglings, the neophytes sleep as deep as octogenarians. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to splash water on their faces as my grandpapa used to do to me, but uh, I think your idea was far gentler and probably more effective. Well, when I used to work at old Goldbeard standing room in Skeggy, we would sometimes have lock-ins for members of his former crew when they were in dock. They were the grumpiest bunch of salty dogs who ever operated out of the dwarf seaport of Barak Var. But a fascinating lot nonetheless. And they had more anecdotes than a beastman has fleas. Anyway, after each of these uh, all-nighters, the place was always filled with snoring dwarves who needed to be uh, woken up and moved along so I could get to cleaning up the joint before the uh, opening it up again, just shy of noon. But let me tell you this, my dear knight. There is no power in the old world that could have got me to sprinkle water onto the face of a sleeping dwarf, especially one who ploughs the waves. At best, they'd probably have bitten off my nose. At worst, they'd have hacked off my old head. Anyway, older old Goldbeard taught me a better way. The lilting pacifier, that is, music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, your lute playing certainly did the trick on the uh, neophytes. Zoviso, what was that tune that you were playing, by the way? Ah, the drunken sailor. It's another shanty I learnt on the Norse whaling boat I used to sail on. The old uh, Orman Barden. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your Orman Barden. Now, what did that mean again? It was something like the uh, hairy snake, wasn't it? Ah, not quite. I think that is actually something else entirely. It actually means the bearded serpent in the common parlance. But uh, the drunken sailor is a fine old tune, and it is not about any scion of the dark gods for a change. Maybe, maybe I'll play it in full for you all later on. I'll see how the mood takes me, eh? Anyway, let's prepare some food and drinks for the neophytes in readiness for their departure from the land of Nod and descent down the wooden hills to join us. Here, Cedric, can't you get that fire burning any fiercer? It's a uh, it's silly chilly in here. Ugh, well, the ashes from my uh, bloody clothes that you burnt earlier are clogging things up here in the fireplace. Well, why don't you uh, rake them out then? Ugh, I would. But uh, where's your where's your raking where's your raking where's your raking yoke? My what? Ah, I see. Sorry. I uh, ah yes, 
I used it to spread the Skaven Bane around the main door earlier. I must have left it outside. I'll go grab it. Welcome back to the world of the living. Grab yourselves one of the furs near the half. It's cold, you know. A fork also, and a dish. It is time to eat and warm yourselves. Ah, here you go, Master Alchemist. Let's see that fire burn. Ah, and I bid you, young neophytes, a hearty welcome too. I will be joining you on this evening, but uh, as a fellow learner, not your tutor. But for now, talk on everyone. The broth is bubbling, and the cheeses are sweating. Right then, everyone. I would say that you've all broken your day-long fast with aplomb. Feel free to now uh, also refill your glasses and tankards with the beverage of your choice. Whilst you do that, I will begin. Now, where were we in the story of ancient Nehekara? Ah, yes. We were discussing the histories and loyalties of the original city-states of Nehekara at the start of the rebellion against the great necromancer Nagash. As I recall, we had explored the White Palace of Qatar under the leadership of King Nemuhareb, the Lord of the Tombs, who was loyal to Nagash and Khemri. Next, we spoke at length about the powerful city of Numas and their twin priest kings, Seheb and Nuneb, who were also ostensibly loyal to the usurper. And then, just before we all retired to our beds, we spoke of Dusty Zandri, the great fleet port, who remained under the control of Nekomet, the priest king of Zandri, and slayer of Nagash's father, the old king of Kemri, Ketep. Nekomet had paid lip service to Kemri until the uh, trade and tax dispute had sparked off a fight between him and Ketep. But... Uh, after this, he returned to, uh, again, ostensibly being loyal to Kemri. However, this state of affairs was not to last. However, before we move on to the other cities and then on to the war itself, I feel it is worth doing a brief overview of the line of succession that led to the bloody ascension of Nagash as this too intimately involves the priest-king of Zandri, Nekumet. Oh, yeah, yeah, please, continue. Well then, let us begin with the original patriarch, he 
who brought his family to power. Ketep, the king of Kemri, and the father to Nagash and Thutep. Nagash was his eldest son, and Thutep was the younger sibling. But it was he who would be king first. It was traditional. I shall come back to the reason for this in a little while, though. Now, if you recall, Ketep was both the vizier and regent to the infant son of Queen Rasut of Kemri, after the suspicious death of her husband, the old king, and all of his heirs in the war with Numas. Indeed, it was she who had defended the city against the scarab king of Numas when he had attempted to capitalize on the power vacuum that should have been precipitated by the loss of their leader by attacking the city directly, only to find no such vacuum and an implacable foe in the ascendant queen. It was then this failure that resulted in his own assassination by persons unknown from within his own ranks. Soon after, however, Queen Rasut too died suddenly, and her infant child followed. The official records say he died of a fever following his mother's death, although elsewhere it was rumoured that the ambitious Ketep had orchestrated both fatalities, if not actually murdered them himself in order to... uh, Assume power. Ugh, he sounds just like another of Macbeth. An eager seeker of power through murder. I agree, and much like your King Macbeth, Ketep immediately took up the reins of power upon the boy's death, beginning the Third Great Dynasty. Oh, and uh, neophytes, do not look so confused by this. Macdeath character we're uh, obliquely referencing here. We are simply referring to the eponymous villain of the famous play, The Tragedy of Macdeath. But uh, our master alchemist here can give you all the details of that tale. Ah, another time though, eh? Anyway, back to Katep. Soon after taking the throne, he also took a wife called Sofa, a well-known beauty who barely seemed to age. She bore the priest-king children, although uh, we do not know how many. Infant mortality was high at the time, you see. But, irrespective of this, at least two survived into adulthood, and they were Nagash and Thutep. But, before his succession had even been secured, by the birth of his two children. Ketep began taking his first steps towards becoming one of the greatest priest-kings in all of Nehekaran history. This started with the building of a great pyramid in the necropolis of Kemri, known as the House of Everlasting Life. The project took uh, close to 25 years, and a million slaves and workers toiled in its construction. Its role was, uh, of course, to act as the resting place of the king upon his death, but such was its grandeur. It also was meant to impress the priest-kings of the other cities and show them that Kemri was once again waxing 
and they should be fearful. However, this was but a single prong of his strategy, for as construction progressed, Ketep himself, through guile, intimidation, alliance and conquest, caused all the kings of Nehekara to bow to him, unifying the country, even going so far as to quell the nomadic desert tribes with the infamous bandit-turned-advisor, Gazid. And so, after all this, a period of great stability and prosperity began for Nehekara, although, in particular, for Kemri herself, as her coffers began to fill with tribute and tax revenue. By the completion of his Great Pyramid, all Nehekara was firmly under Ketep's foot, and, as was traditional, he had the architect ritually strangled and entombed within his creation, a tradition we discussed at length when we talked about the wily architect Ramhotep. Anyway, its completion was timely, for, at this very point, Ketep's chickens came home to roost, as we say back in Middleland. It was exactly 1,968 years before the start of the imperial calendar when Ketep found a practical use for his Great Pyramid, as he was killed in battle by King Nekumet of mighty Zandri. The details that the Arabian scholar Ibn Jalaba told to me, gleaned from broken fragments of hieroglyphic writings from Zandri itself, seemed to indicate that, in response to a trade dispute between Kemri and the royal household and nobles of Zandri, Ketep brought his army to the fleet board. Zandri, as we discussed, kept a large and ever-ready standing army and rode out to meet the king of Kemri. As ever, Ketep was protected by his fearless Ushabti, those imposing statues that, imbued with unlithe through possession by the souls of fallen heroes, cut a swathe through their enemies with their gigantic two-handed blades and shot down threats further afield with their great bows. The Ushabti that guarded Ketep were known as the Blessed of the Gods, and well had they earned that moniker, for each was a hero who had died in the defence of the city of Kemri. Nekomet, the king of Zandri, was not unprotected though, and it was the role of the Zandri Eternals, the elite regiment of royal tomb guard from the city's army, to act as his bodyguards, and in this they too excelled. In the battle, slaughter and bloodletting are awash around them. The two leaders tore through the enemy's ranks to reach each other. The more numerous Eternals fearlessly attacked the Ushabti, and although many of the Zandrians were killed, the arcane constructs were occupied enough to allow Nekumet to get into combat with Ketep. King fought with King. Blade struck blade, and blood was spilt. But as the fog of battle lifted, it was Ketep who lay dead at Nekumet's feet. The blame 
was laid upon the Ushabti that had failed to protect their charge. But I feel that the real blame belonged to Ketep himself, who was deftly outmaneuvered by Nekomet. Nekomet having not only provoked him to battle, but effectively chosen the battlefield where it would take place. That is the mark of a great statesman and the mark of a great warlord. Anyway, they were instructed by Gazid, now a Grand Vizier of Kemri, to take their fallen king back to his tomb in the House of Everlasting Life and lay him to rest there. His wife, Sofa, distraught beyond words, went to pray at the temple of the god Jaff, the deity of war and death, before joining Ketep in his tomb in death. The poison for the ritual provided by Kemri's grand hierophant of the mortuary cult, her eldest son, Nagash. What? He killed his own mother? Ah, well, the death of the spouse at the loss of the king was expected in those days. But, yes, he did, in a roundabout way. However, don't worry, he's going to do much, much worse to those, friend and foe alike, who survived his father's death. Anyway... Queen Sofa imbibed the poison she received from Nagash before being led within, where her body was prepared for her long sleep by being wrapped in ritual bandages and placed within her sarcophagus beside the fallen king. After the king's death, it was his son, Thutep, the younger sibling, and not Nagash, that succeeded him. This too was traditional. But still, it was something that would come to eat away at the black heart of the high priest, as Thutep demonstrated that he was not up to the task. This would eventually cause Nagash to take steps to take the throne for himself and save Kemri. Oh, yeah, so he was the uh, city's saviour then? Ha! A debatable point. In his own eyes, yes. But in everyone else's, most definitely not.